Alright, so we're in Genesis chapter 8 today because we're just walking through the book of Genesis and this uh, God is sovereign, knew where we'd be. And he's got us here this morning, Genesis chapter 8. We're going to do the whole chapter, verse 1 through 22. We're going to walk through that. Um, it's the flood part 2. Dustin did the flood part 1 last week. <coughs> In wrath, remember mercy. This is what we see in this chapter. In the midst of God's wrath, we see mercy. Before we read this, and this this is so good, y'all. I mean, seriously, like, I'm, I've felt a little overwhelmed. You got God's faithfulness in Genesis 8. You got God's justice in Genesis 8. You got God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, the propitiation. The common grace of God to all men, it's just all poured out. And I'm just overwhelmed. Going, what do I do with all this? Genesis chapter 8 has been awesome. And I pray it will be good to us all. So before we read it, we're going to read the whole chapter together. But together before we do that and before we uh, pray and ask the Lord for help, I just want to kind of set the scene that Genesis 8 is in. Okay, I want to kind of set the context, set the scene here of where we're headed. Okay. So if you've been going along with us, you know that we're in Genesis, and we're in the third Toledot. You remember what that means? We're in the third Toledot of Genesis, which is the flood story. And this third Toledot runs from chapter 6, verse 9, which is where Dustin started last week, all the way to chapter 9, verse 29, which is the end of chapter 9. Okay, So this is that third Toledot. Now, if you remember, a Toledot is the way that Genesis is broken up. There's about ten of these sections and every time you, say, say, you see something that says, and these are the generations, or some of your versions might say, and this is the history of, it's beginning a new section right there. And that Hebrew word for generations or history, however your, ver- your version translates it, translates it is toledo. Okay? So this is how it's broken up. And so all through Genesis so far, and I want you to see this, we have this reoccurring theme of God's judgment, yet God's grace. God's, God's wrath and yet God's mercy. His justice and His grace just lined up as a theme that runs all through the book of Genesis. And we've seen it so far. So for example, the first Toledot that we went through was chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 26. And what did we see there? We saw the fall of man where man rebelled against God and we see God rain down the judgment on that. As death enters into the world, Destruction comes to this world. It's infested now. It's corrupted now. And they're kicked out of the presence of God. Out of the Garden of Eden. And yet, right in the midst of it, what do we see? God's grace shining through. As He says, there's one coming that's going to crush Satan's head. Genesis 3.15. And He slaughters an animal and clothes them in the clothes of that slaughtered animal. And we see little glimpses of the grace of God right in the midst of judgment. In the first Toledo. What about in the second one? The second one runs, the second section runs from chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 8. And what we see is mankind deteriorating into horrific wickedness. Terrible wickedness. Every intent of the thought of their heart, only evil continually. And God is going to rain down wrath and rain down judgment. And right at the end of it, what do we see? And Noah found grace in his sight. We see the justice of God. We see the grace of God lined up right beside each other. And then we see the same thing in this third Toledo, this third section, which is the flood story. And in the flood story, we see God's justice, God's wrath poured out, and yet we see His grace. We see His mercy shining through 
right in the midst of it. This is an incredibly important theme for you to see that runs throughout the whole Bible. If you don't get this theme of God's justice and God's grace, and how could it be that the one who is just would actually show grace on us? Wouldn't that ruin His justice? Because He would let criminals like us go free? How could He show us grace and still remain just? And this theme runs through the whole Bible. And if you don't understand this theme, you don't understand the Gospel. And we see it all here in the flood story and at the beginning of Genesis. So I want you, I want you to see it. I want you to see it as we walk through Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, it begins from the very first verse with the wrath of God and justice of God already poured out on mankind for their sin. It's already been poured out. They've been, they've been floating on those judgment waters for 150 days. When we get, when we get to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. And as Dustin said last week, this flood story is not some cute children's story. This is a scene of horrible destruction. You're supposed to picture scenes of, of, of terrible screams. Screams for mercy that never get answered. Scratches on the boat. Let me in. You're supposed to see terrible scenes of judgment. Not a cute kid's story. Horrific mass death happens at the judgment flood. And so can you imagine the aftermath of this flood? Can you imagine what it was like? The aftermath when they, their feet hit dry ground for the first time. What did they see? What did it look like when they first stepped off the boat? And I'm telling you, it was not like we see in so often in these little children's stories. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. That's not what it was. What did they see? They see utter destruction as the earth has been destroyed by this flood. The New Testament says the world that they once knew had perished. Imagine dead bodies floating on top of these floodwaters. Dead bodies all over the place that have died in this massive destruction of a flood. The judgment of God. This is the scene that you see. Imagine a global Hurricane Katrina. You remember seeing the aftermath? Have you ever seen the pictures of the aftermath of Katrina? And places are just absolutely wiped out. And you see bodies washing up ashore. It's terrible. Imagine a global impact like that. Or imagine the aftermath of the atomic bomb when it fell down on Hiroshima. And now, and now spread that all over the globe. And this is God's judgment raining down on man in the flood. And all of this is to remind us that our God is just our God is a just God. Dustin preached it last week. He's a just God. He makes no apologies about this. And this comes hard against the false God of our culture that does not punish sin. It's literally the oldest trick in the book to try to trick you and say that if you sin against God, you rebel against God, He won't do anything to harm you. He won't hurt you. You will not die, says Satan in Genesis chapter 3. But it's a false God. Our God is a God of justice and He will punish sin and He does pour out His wrath and we see that in the judgment flood. If you ever doubt it, if you ever doubt the justice of God, you just need to remember that literally six, seven, eight chapters into the book of Genesis, the first book, He wipes out everybody on planet earth except eight people. Remember that if you ever doubt the justice of God. Our God is a God who punishes sin. Our God is a God who is just. And yet, 
Right in the midst of it, we see grace come shining through the darkness. And we go, our God's a God of grace. And even if we don't know how these things fit together, how can it be just toward a wicked person like me and yet show me grace? How can it be? We know from this story that grace shines through. He is a God of grace at the same time. Genesis 6 eight. Noah found grace in his sight. It reminds me of the prayer of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 3, He's seeing destruction and misery all around him. He cries out, Oh God, in wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. God calls Noah. We see his, in the flood, we see his grace as Noah gets called by God onto the atonement ark. He gets called onto the atonement ark and God, God shuts the door and the judgment waters never touch him. It reminds me of James chapter 2 when he says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 8. 150 days into the most horrific scene that has ever hit earth. 150 days. This is where we get in Genesis chapter 8. 150 days into the most horrific display of God's judgment this earth has ever seen. Outside of the death of Christ. And we've got Noah. Then God remembered Noah. Chapter 8 verse 1. That's the grace of God. Right in the midst of it. 150 days. They've been sitting in this judgment. It says in 8 verse 1. Then God remembered Noah. Oh the grace of God. He remembers Noah. And this is grace. And this grace... And God remembered Noah. This grace right in the midst of judgment is supposed to be a massive emphasis for us as we think about the flood story. This third Toledo. It's supposed to be a massive emphasis for us. And I'll give you one quick reason why. If you are here last week, this will sit with you real quick. If not, you have to go back and listen. If you remember, Dustin explained that from, from chapter 6, verse 9 on into chapter 8, there's this literary device called a chiasmus. Okay? And what it does, it peaks. It's got like the beginning and the end. Okay, so you, you're in chapter 6, verse 9, and you're over here in chapter 8, and you've got two pieces that parallel each other, such as Noah built an ark and Noah built an altar. And then the next piece is coming in. As you're coming, coming in this way, it's like a pyramid, and these mirror each other, and these mirror each other. And then you get right to the peak, the center of it, and the center of it is this literary device is meant to emphasize Something is called a chiasmus, and we have it right here in this third Toledo. And what is the centerpiece of that chiasmus? What is it? And it's this verse right here. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And one thing we're supposed to walk away with is that's the emphasis. We think about the flood story. One thing that's supposed to strike us is right in the midst of judgment, God poured out grace. He showed grace, and then He remembers Noah and those in the ark. And He's going to act on that. So let's do it. Let's read chapter 8 together. And then we're going to pray. And we'll begin to walk verse by verse through it. Okay, Read it with me. Genesis chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with Him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. 
At the end of 150 days, the waters de decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventh day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth, so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, we worship You for all these, all these things that are found, all the treasures that are found here, that You are the just judge. You're the righteous one. All these treasures, God, that You're, that you're full of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Are the truths about Your faithfulness. The truth about the propitiation, Lord. All these things that You have done that are so good. God, help us to see. As we slow down and walk through this chapter, Help us to see, God, open our eyes to worship You. God, I pray that You would give everyone here a heart to lean in, to incline our ears and hear the truth of Your Word. And God, I pray You would speak. That You'd speak into the heart of men and women here. That You would move us by Your Word. That You would cause us to worship God as we ought. That You would move us to obedience, Lord. God, help us. I pray that You would give every person here a moment. A moment of clarity. A moment of worship, God. Even a moment where they put their pencil down and they praise Your name.
God, I pray that You'd give us that here this morning. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, so chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. This is our first section, chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. I won't read the whole thing again since we just read it. But that first section, verse 1 through 5, we begin to see God as He receives the floodwaters. He remembers Noah and He begins to receive the floodwaters. So, so why? Why does God, according to those verses, why does God receive, why does He pull back on the floodwaters? Why? It says because He remembered Noah and all the rest that were there. He remembered it. Does this mean that God forgot him? Does this mean God had a mind slip? And He forgot about Noah and the people in the ark for a time. Is that what that means? And, and I would say absolutely not because God never forgets anything. He's the all-knowing, omniscient one. He doesn't forget a thing. Listen to Isaiah 49 verse 15. It says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? You nursing ladies, you can answer it. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? And we think probably not. Nursing ladies not going to forget her baby and not have compassion on her baby. She wouldn't do that. But compared to God, the verse goes on to say, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So God didn't forget them. God never forgot Noah. God remembered. It says God remembered Noah. This is covenant language. The idea here is there's a covenant that's been made and God is remembering His covenant that He made and He's ready to act on that promise. God remembered Noah. God remembered those in the ark. means He's, he's remembered that covenant and he's, he's getting ready to act on that covenant in just a moment. Cross-references to this will be Genesis. Just listen. You don't have to flip with me. I'm going to flip fast. Genesis 9.15 God says, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. See, this is covenant language. I will remember my covenant. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Listen to what God says here. So God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is covenant language. Leviticus 26, verse 42. Just listen to it. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. And I'm going to read one more backing up into Exodus 32. This is covenant language when God says He remembered Noah. He remembered them. Listen to Exodus 32. I'm going to read verse 13. This is, He knows, Moses knows that God is a God that remembers His covenant. And He keeps His covenant. Listen to what he says in his prayer. He says, God, remember... He knows God doesn't forget. It's not what He means. Listen. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore. That's a covenant. To whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. So this language is covenant language. Then God remember Noah. He didn't forget anything, but He's getting ready to act on the covenant that He has made. So think about it. God made a promise. And in that promise, He said, there's coming one. It's right after sin enters the world. This promise that there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. 
There's coming one. And God's as He's getting ready to wipe out the whole, the whole earth, He shows grace to Noah. And He remembers Noah. He remembers this covenant that He made. Not to mention in Genesis 6, God literally made a covenant with Noah. A covenant of grace with Noah. And here He is on the judgment waters for 150 days and God is going to remember His covenant. He's going to remember it. And again, the fact that this covenant language is at the peak of the chiasmus, I told you about this means there's an emphasis here. The fact that that's true means that in the flood story, there should be an emphasis in our mind that this is about our God who remembers His covenant. He does that. He's about to wipe out all the earth. But wait a minute. He says one's coming through the human race that's going to crush, crush Satan's head and save the world. And so he remembers his covenant with Noah. He's faithful to remember his covenant. God remembers Noah, takes action. And how does he take action and fulfill this promise? How does he do it? And it says he begins to recede those floodwaters. And how does he do it? Verse 1 says, the second sentence in verse 1, and God made a wind to pass over the earth. So He did it by a wind. He begins to recede those waters by a wind. And the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. So the fountains of the deep that erupted and the windows from heaven that poured out, He stops it all up. And the rain from heaven was restrained. So God begins to stop this flood, stop these judgment waters. And He begins to pull back on the flood. And so for 150 days, what we're going to see, and what we see in these first five verses, is for 150 days, we see the floodwaters receding from the earth, which means Noah and his crew were on that boat for, for over a year. Floating on those floodwaters, those judgment waters. And here's what I want you to see from this passage. Our God's faithful. He's faithful. This is covenant language. He remembered them 150 days into this mess. And our God is faithful. That means whatever our God says He does, right? It means whatever He purposes, He performs it. He's never told a lie. He's always spoken truth. Our God is faithful. Listen to Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? Think about that. The faithfulness of God. Listen to Joshua 21.45. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. What does that say about the faithfulness of our God? Solomon said this. He said, There has not failed one word of all His good promise spoken to the house of Israel. All have come to pass. Of all His promises through His servant Moses in 1 Kings 8. Not one single word has failed. Our God is faithful. Psalm 89 verse 34. God says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Our God is faithful. God made a promise to the human race that there's coming one through your lineage that's going to crush Satan's head. And He keeps His promise. And in the flood where He wipes them all out, He has grace on Noah. And He remembers them in those flood waters. And the judgment doesn't touch Him. And Christ eventually comes. Do you need a reminder of that this morning? So Maybe somebody here needs a reminder of that. That God is faithful. God remembered Noah. 
God is faithful to His Word. What do you do? What do you do? When you read His Word and you get these promises and you're seeing these things. I just read lots of things to you about God's faithfulness. And you know that all that He says is true. And then you begin to read these promises. What do you do with that? He is the faithful God. And maybe you need to hear that. He's never broken a word to His children. Can you think of a time? He's a faithful God. And you can trust His every single word. Every single word He speaks. Second section, verse 6 through 12, right there. And you can see that on your study guide. What we're going to see, and I like this, is that what happens here. Now we're going to get Noah's perspective. It's like in verse 1 through 5, we just got God's perspective. It doesn't say that He said anything to Noah. We just know that God remembered Noah and He begins to do a work. And now in verse 6 through 12, we're going to get Noah's insight. What does Noah know about it? We get His perspective on the waters that are receding. Okay? So here's the plain sense. Read verse 6 with me. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Now we know that he, by opening the window, this doesn't mean that he could actually see the waters and see that they were receding. He can't tell that. This is the reason why he's about to send out birds to tell him that. Apparently the ark is so big, it's so massive, he looks out this window and he may can see the sky, but he can't see the waters, okay? So he looks out this window, he's looking, he's looking out. Verse 7 and 8. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from, from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So it's obvious. Here's what we know. He just said he sent out the dove to do what? To see if the waters are receding from the face of the ground. So we know why he's sending these birds out. And it's very clear in the dove. Now with the raven, it's not quite so clear. Why did he send the raven out first? The raven that never came back. And there's different opinions on this. And, and most don't know. Probably one of the best uh, shots I saw at it was John MacArthur saying that the raven seems to bring back news of death as a raven can go. And those bodies floating on the water after the judgment of the flood, that, that that bird can actually go and eat from those bodies and do these things, that it brings back news of death. But we know, that we know as we're about to read, that the dove can bring back news of life because this dove's not going to settle in till she has a place to put her foot. So she comes back to Noah. Verse 9. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark. So what we know so far, what Noah knows now, is that the waters have not receded. The dove came back. The waters are not going away, at least as far as he understands. Verse 10 and 11. And he waited. So Noah waits yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Now he gets a little light. He gets a little insight here. There's a, he examines the olive leaf. And it's been freshly plucked. This means that, that the waters are receding. And life is rejuvenating the earth again. And then verse 12. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove which did not return again to him anymore. The earth was becoming dry and it's almost time to get off the ark. 
Now, seeing this from Noah's perspective in this section, seeing it from Noah's perspective should cause us to try to put ourselves in his shoes. Okay, we're seeing it. We've already seen what God's doing and his faithfulness. And yet, what can Noah see? He sends out a bird. He doesn't know. Nothing comes back. And then eventually he knows, okay, these waters are receding. So seeing it from his perspective should cause us to put ourselves in his shoes. Can you imagine how he and his family felt on these judgment waters for over a year? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine times of doubt or times of sadness or faithlessness? Has God forgotten us? Has our God forsaken us? Can you imagine struggling with times like that? And yet at the same time, can you imagine over this year period on those judgment waters, not knowing what's happening, can you imagine times or or moments of clarity where they remember God's faithfulness and they rejoice with joy unspeakable that our God is faithful and we can trust Him? Can you imagine this going on over this year? And I say Noah sending out these birds is a good example for us of what it looks out what it looks like to reach out for the faithfulness of God and reach out again for the faithfulness of God as Noah sends out these birds. I want you to think about it. He sends out the bird. It seems that they are forsaken. So he sends out another one and then it comes back. It seems like they're forsaken. The only thing they know there's death on the waters. That's all they know. And nothing Nothing has happened. So he waits a little time. What does he do? And he, he, he keeps reaching out. He keeps reaching out for the faithfulness of God. So he sends out another one. But this one, this time one comes back with evidence of God's faithfulness. So he comes back with the olive leaves. So I want you to think about that. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Think about Noah. He's wondering, when, when will God get us off this ark? And so he sends out a raven. When will God get us off this ark? And so he sends out a raven. And he learns nothing. He learns nothing from the raven except maybe there's death. And so, he, so maybe he begins to fight back fear. Maybe he's full of fear at that moment. And he begins to fight it back with something like this. Listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the, and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled. I will not fear. So he waits a little bit of time. Maybe he's still struggling with some fear. He waits a little time and he sends out a dove. And this time he's pretty sure the waters aren't receding. Because not only doesn't he learn anything, but he learns that they're not receding because the dove has come back. And so you imagine him as he begins to fight back doubt. Maybe he fights back anxiety with something like this in Psalm 32. Listen. In a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And then time passes. Some more time passes on. And Noah, with his faith renewed, maybe his faith is renewed right here, and he sends out another dove. He sends one out again, reaching out for the faithfulness of God. He sends out another one. And this time one comes back with signs of God's faithfulness. The waters are receding and life is growing again on planet earth. And could you see Noah in that moment just exploding with praise? His oath, his covenant, his blood, they're over me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, God is my hope and stay. Could you see him exploding with praise as he gets a little glimpse of the faithfulness of God? And then when we get to verse 13, Genesis 8, 13. 
13 through 19, this is what we see. We see God calls Noah and his family out of the ark now. He's going to call them out of the ark. Verse 13 through 15, we see a beautiful picture of Noah waiting on God's word. Read it with me. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, so you got a time there, that the waters were dried up from the earth. So now he knows. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and he looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. Surface of the ground is dry. But wait a minute. He, he doesn't immediately get out. It says, And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke. This is when we see Noah come out of the ark. And we see this beautiful picture of Noah patiently waiting on the word of his God to come out of this ark. And then when you get to verse 15 through 19 about what God said, you see a, a, what almost seems like a, a, an unnecessary repetition. An unnecessary repetition. Look at verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah saying, listen to the repetition. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. There's the command. And listen to the repetition. It seems so unnecessary. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. And so you see this almost seemingly unnecessary repetition coming through here. Okay, so what's going on here? This, you, you've got this smooth, this, the story's just flowing, and then all of a sudden you've got this unnecessary repetition that goes down. This is a literary device. One of the commentators called it Hebrew slow motion, which I like. It's saying slow down and think about what's happening right here. He's getting out on dry ground. The judgment waters never touched him. And he's getting out on dry ground. You think about the pain and the joy. Just, so let's just do it. Let's do the Hebrew slow motion. Let's slow down and think about what's happening right here. Think of the pain, the joy that they've endured. The pain of seeing people dying everywhere. They see death. Even as they step out of the ark, they see death and destruction everywhere. Oh, the pain. Even family members dead. The judgment of God has come. And yet the joy as they think, but God has delivered me. All, this, all the destruction, and yet God has delivered me. Why, oh God, would you deliver one like me? And now they're going to step on a dry land and the judgment never touched them. It never got wet. What must it have been like? What would it have been like? So let's pause and think about it. What would it have been like to step out on the dry land after being on those judgment waters for a year? The, the, the remnants of the wrath of God are everywhere. They see it. Destruction's everywhere. New Testament says that world that they knew had perished. It's gone. It's dead. This is what they see. And yet, they have been delivered. They've been delivered. And so they step out on the dry land knowing that God the Almighty has delivered them. Noah knows. He knows. He knows that he deserves death and destruction just like everybody else. He knows that he deserves the death and destruction that he sees all around him. This is the reason in a moment he's about to lay down a sacrifice for his sins. 
And yet God by His wonderful grace, knowing God also knows that God that, that Noah deserves the judgment and the wrath that was poured out, and yet God pours out incredible grace and saved him. Noah and his family has been delivered. And this is what we think about as they step out on the dry ground. Now every person, every person here that belongs to Christ, if you're here and you belong to Jesus, you're going to experience something like this. Something similar in that day of judgment. And God's wrath is poured out the Almighty. And something deep in you, you're going to know more vividly than you've ever known in your life that you deserve that wrath. You're going to know more vividly than you've ever seen before that I'm supposed to come under that judgment and yet my God has delivered me. It never touched me. The flood of God's judgment never rained down on me. And you're going to be amazed by it. I want you to see something here. You can turn, hold your place and turn to 2 Peter. I want you to see in this section that our God knows how to deliver Second Peter chapter three, no chapter two. I want you to see that our God's able to deliver. I hope somebody here needs to hear this. Our God's able to deliver. He knows how to deliver. He knows how to do that. And you need to hear this. Let me explain something quickly. Second Peter chapter two. If you look at verse four through nine, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me see if I can explain it to you in a flash. Verse 4 shows you God's judgment raining down on those fallen angels. Verse 5 shows you God's judgment raining down on the people in Noah's day. And yet Noah's delivered. Verse 6 shows you God's judgment raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Lot is delivered. So you got three examples given you. God's destruction and judgment. God's destruction and judgment. God's destruction and judgment. And one of the examples given is what we're reading about Noah's flood. Okay? Now what does it say in verse 4? If God did not spare, and he goes on to give three examples. If God brought down judgment here, and brought down judgment here, yet delivered, and brought down judgment here, yet delivered. If God did that, look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So at least one thing that we're supposed to learn from Noah's flood is what? Our God knows how to deliver. He can do that. He needs no one's permission. He does whatever He pleases and our God knows how to deliver. Are you worried? Are you worried and anxious about an unconverted child? Our God knows how to deliver. He didn't need your child's permission nor yours. Are you worried about a lost friend, a lost family member, something like this? Our God knows how to deliver. Look at what He did with Noah and his family. Maybe you're worried about your own salvation. And, I, and I'll... Some of, the, some of these young, the younger kids here, and I know you're a little outnumbered, younger kids, but let me say something to you. I've heard many of you say things like, there's this judgment coming, and I know that God is a just judge, and yet I don't know if God would be, I don't know if God, how He could forgive somebody like me, and you listen to me. God is able to deliver. He knows how to deliver. This is what He does. So you can trust Him. You can trust Him to deliver. Put your trust in Christ. He knows how to deliver. Chapter 8, verse 20. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Go back there. 
Now we're going to see. This is awesome. <laughs> now we're going to see what Noah does. What's Noah going to do? <clears throat> you imagine what he's been through? And now he's going to step on the dry land, having completely escaped the flood of God's judgment. What is he going to do next? And we're going to see it in verse 20. Look at it. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So he steps out on the ju- to dry land and what does he do? He begins to worship God by spilling the blood of a sacrifice. This is an expression of thanksgiving from Noah, an expression of worship, an expression of praise to God. My God has delivered me. And so he immediately builds an altar. He built an ark. As God told him for salvation, now he builds an altar and he worships his God who has delivered him. Now how did Noah know to do this? Where did this come from? And we know, we, we know at least he knew to do it, right? We know that. And we also get evidence like in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. God tells them about a rescuer that's coming. A rescuer that's coming for them, going to crush Satan's head. And he slaughters the animal and clothes them in the robes of that animal that he, he slaughtered, the blood that was spilled. Maybe you got the idea from there. Or maybe a chapter later in Genesis 4, when Abel offers up that blood sacrifice, and that's the sacrifice that God honored. That's the sacrifice that God accepted. The one where blood was spilled. And so Noah does this. This sacrifice of Noah would not have only been a thanksgiving offering, but this would have been a propitiation. A propitiation offering. Propitiation is a very, very important word in your New Testament. It's a very, very important word. Jesus is referred to in our Bibles as the propitiation for our sins. That's what He's referred to. Jesus Christ, who God set forth as a propitiation, Romans chapter 3. He's the propitiation for our sins. And this word, in the simplest form I can give it, it means He's the wrath bearer. Or I heard a commentator say it like this, He's the wrath removing sacrifice. He's the propitiation. And I believe Noah steps off the boat, and you try to imagine it. He stepped off the boat on the dry land and he is terribly reminded of God's wrath on sinners. So the first thing he does, lay down a, lay down a wrath-removing sacrifice. Lay it down. Lay down in that propitiation. Now of course we all know, I hope we all know, that animal sacrifices have never been a real propitiation. They've never really taken away sins. Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. They were meant to be a pointer, a shadow to point to the real propitiation of sins. Who is Christ Jesus the Lamb? Who was our wrath bearer? Who was our our wrath removing sacrifice? And this is what this points to. Now how do I know this is the intention of Noah's burnt offering? Listen. Listen to Job chapter 1. I want you to see that this was the practice from very early on, even in Job. Job chapter 1 verse 5. Listen. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job, here's Job, Job would sin and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning. And what would Job do? Offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. It's the number of his children. 
For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Here we see this picture of a propitiation. My sins, my, my sons might have sinned against God and cursed Him in their heart. Therefore, I lay down this sacrifice. I spill the blood of another. So think about it. Think about it. Noah sees the wrath of God, the judgment of God, more vividly than anybody else living on earth right now. He sees it. And then he steps off the boat. And he sees all the horrible signs of God's wrath. And the first thing he does is what? Offer up that wrath removing sacrifice. Offer up that propitiation for himself, for his family, and for all who would come after him. This idea, this idea of propitiation, it answers the problem of God's justice and God's grace. This idea of propitiation answers the problem of God's justice and God's grace. You say, what do you mean? There's a problem? What's the problem with God's justice and God's grace? And the problem is, how can God express His justice and His grace towards sinners like us? How can He do that? How could He possibly do that towards rebels and criminals like us? Think about it. If God gives us justice as He is, we all go to hell forever. We all go to hell. But if God gives us grace then He's no longer just because He lets criminal and wretched sinners like us go free. How could He do such a thing? Propitiation solved the problem. Propitiation solves the problem. In the propitiation, you see, the, the guilty one, their guilt is laid upon another. And after that guilt is laid upon another, the punishment and the wrath that that one deserves lands on the one that took the sin. And so now God can pour out His wrath on, on sinners. He can pour out His justice. And He never let one sin go free. He never swept one under, under the rug. And yet because the sin's been laid on a propitiation, because it's been, the wrath's been poured out on another, we can receive God's grace. The propitiation answers the problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Listen. Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. He Jesus, the one that Noah's sacrifice points to, He's the wrath bearer. He's the wrath removing sacrifice. He was punished in our place. And here we see Noah vividly seeing the wrath of God. And boom, he offers it up as a picture for us all. Verse 21-22. We're going to see God's response. Let's, let's read it. How's God going to respond to Noah's offering. Verse 21, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So this is how God responds. It says, God, upon this burnt offering, this sacrifice, the blood spilled, the sacrifice is laid down, and God does what? He smells a soothing aroma. Mm. Does this mean God actually smelled it? Is, is it His nostrils? What's He trying to get out of here? Did God literally smell something with His nostrils? I think what He's saying is you're seeing the pleasure of God. That the propitiation is laid down, and God is pleased with this, and he takes it up, and it's a soothing aroma. It's a pleasing thing. 
in the mind of God. Now, why did this please God? Why? One reason it would please God, because this is a picture of Noah coming and worshiping. God has done a mighty thing, and Noah comes in thanksgiving and worship and lays it down. But even more than that, he's pleased because of what it points to. He's pleased because of what it points to. The work of anybody from Adam's race cannot in and of itself please God because it's tainted with sin. Your sacrifice can't please God because it's tainted with sin. Listen to Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. That's us. We lay down the sacrifice. It's an abomination to God. And yet God looks on this sacrifice that points to Jesus who's going to come as the propitiation. And it says it's a soothing aroma, soothing aroma in the nostrils of God. So think about it. Just think for a minute about this truth. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 said that God's heart, it said, you go back and read it, God's heart was grieved over the wretchedness and wickedness of mankind. And so He pours out His wrath. And right here we see that God's grieved heart has been soothed because of the propitiation. See it? You thinking about it? Add a layer to that. Man is still sinful. The sin didn't go away. Did you look at the verse in verse 21? He says, although, so God says, I'm never going to do this again. Although what? Although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. The sin is still there. The sin is not going away. And the grieved heart of God, angry towards sin, going to pour out his wrath. And yet now is soothed. Now the grieved heart of God is soothed. What could do such a thing? It's the propitiation. It's the propitiation. Then we see, even though man is sinful to the core, God pledges, I will never, even though He knows, although man is sinful from his youth. This is original sin. This means at the core of who you are, you are sinful, desperately wicked against this God. And what it says, what it says right here is He says to that kind of people, I will never pour out this judgment again. Look at it, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake and skip down, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So think about it. God's anger towards these sinners has been appeased. God has been soothed. And God pledges not to pour out this kind of judgment. I won't pour out that judgment you just saw, that wrath you just saw again. Why? Because of the propitiation. It's a response to that Blood-spilled sacrifice. Think about that. And then think about Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that Christ is that propitiation. Isaiah 53 5 and 6. It says that we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He's the sacrifice. The sin was laid upon Him. And then it says He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. And you read a little further in Isaiah 53, and what does it say? It says that God's going to see the labor of His soul, that propitiation, and be satisfied, soothed. My righteous servant will justify many because He's going to bear their iniquity. <coughs> Praise God for His propitiation. Last thing I want to say about God's response right here is this. You see in that last verse, verse 22, you see the common grace of God is promised. Okay? 
And, and really the common grace of God in a specific way. Like seed time and harvest. Think about that. Seeds laid down, fruit comes up, we eat. He said that's going to keep happening. Cold and heat, winter and summer, these seasons are going to keep happening. Day and night, you're going to wake up to sunshine at some point. And go to bed at night. This is going to keep happening. This is the common grace of God that we see right here. Now, now other places in the Bible that speak to stuff like this. Matthew 5, verse 45. It says, God makes His Son, His Son in the sky, to rise on the good and the evil. God's just common grace toward even those who hate Him. Acts 14, verse 17. It says, God has not left Himself without witness. And that God did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, seed time and harvest, filling our hearts with food and gladness. This is God's witness. This is God's common grace poured out. And normally, on my end, when I normally think about the common grace of God, I just think about the general kindness and mercy and grace of God, just in general. And then I read this passage, and I realized that this passage added another aspect to that. Because of Noah's propitiation offering, God promises this common grace, this piece of common grace is going to be on all men. Think about that. Every generation, every single generation has deserved a cataclysmic flood of God's judgment to come raining down on them. And yet every single generation has seen winter and summer, and day, and night, and seed time, and harvest, and ate of the fruit of the work. Every generation has seen that, although they deserve the judgment of God's wrath. And what are we connected to? The propitiation. The propitiation. And so now, every time, and you come with me in this, every time we see the sunset, and every time we see the sun rise, and every time we see the seasons change, and every time we see the crops grow, and we get to eat the fruit of it, every single time, you can remember what Noah has done, and that he laid down that propitiation, and even more so, you can remember what it points to. That this common grace of God, because a sacrifice was slain, sacrifice's blood was spilled, and then we can worship Jesus. Let the common grace of God be a reminder to you that, Questions. This is at the bottom of your study guide there. Questions. A couple closing questions here. Did the flood, we're talking about this flood story, did the flood eradicate sin? Did it eradicate sin? You compare Genesis 6 5, which is pre flood. Why did God pour out his wrath in a flood? Why? Because every intent of the thought of their heart is only evil continually. And then you go post-flood. The flood's over. What's man's heart like now? And we just read it in verse 21. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So no. No. Did the flood eradicate sin? The answer is no. The flood could not cleanse the heart of man. Man's heart is still desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus said in Mark 7, out of man's heart proceeds all kind of evil things. The flood could not cleanse the heart of man. So then the next question is this, what was the point? You got the flood and you got Noah's deliverance from the flood. What's the point? 
What was the point of this whole thing? And here's some, here, here's some things you need to know. Here's the point. What's the point of the flood? It's to flash God's judgment, right? We've already talked about that and Dustin spoke on it last week. It's to flash the judgment of God. You need to know that our God is a just judge. What was the point of the flood and Noah's deliverance? It's to flash God's grace. Our God is full of grace to flash it so we can see it. We've already talked about that, especially in the life of Noah. You see God's grace flash in the life of Noah. And you also see God's grace flash in the fact that through the flood, He is preserving the seed. He's preserving the seed. Do you understand that? I need you to understand that. Through the flood, He's preserving the seed. Here's what I mean by that. What I spoke of earlier. Genesis 3.15, a promise that from the seed of the woman is coming a Savior that's going to crush Satan's head. And then we get genealogies in chapter 5 that walk us right in to trace out the lineage of that seed. Because He's coming. He's coming. And you get into chapter 6 and a flood's coming, but Noah finds grace in the sight because the seed of the woman's coming through him. Here it comes. This is how you read the book of Genesis. And then sin spreads all throughout the earth again. Again, because the flood didn't eradicate sin. And then in chapter 12, we see a descendant of Noah, Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And he makes that promise to him again in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18. And he makes the same promise to his son. In your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. And then He makes the same promise to His grandson. In your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So here's this line, this promise that outlines the book of Genesis to you. And what we see is that God has shown grace and that in the flood, He preserved the seed. Think about it. The same flood that displayed God's wrath and judgment in destroying sinners also displayed God's grace in preserving the seed that's going to save sinners. So did the flood eradicate sin? No, it didn't. But it did preserve the seed that would come and eradicate sin. In Romans chapter 8, it speaks about that seed, Jesus, when He comes. It says He's going to come to do what the law couldn't do, to condemn sin in the flesh. He came to eradicate sin, to condemn sin in the flesh by dying in our place as a propitiation. So, point of the flood. The point of Noah's deliverance. you got a flash of God's judgment. you got a flash of God's grace. And here's something that we haven't talked about. Okay, This is the last little piece of this I want to bring to you. Here's something we haven't talked about as much. This story of the flood and Noah's deliverance is meant to draw our attention to that final judgment day that's coming. And there's a way to be delivered. And it's meant to draw our attention. I say that because when you go to the New Testament... Every place in the New Testament where Noah's story is referred to uses it and treats it like a foreshadow of the judgment that's coming. Almost every time. So I figure we should do the same. That's what our New Testaments do. And we should do the same. So let me draw our attention to the future judgment. And I really want you to get personal with me here. The whole range of my brothers and sisters in this room and there's people I don't know in this room. whole range of, of us. Okay? Everybody, draw in with me on this, okay? We are supposed to have our minds thrust forward to a judgment that's coming as we think about this story. That's true. So listen to me. There is another judgment coming. There is another judgment coming. And you need to ask yourself, where am I going to be in that judgment? Listen to Matthew 24. 
For as in the days of Noah, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. There's a day coming. Are you ready for it? So zone in with me here. Are you ready for the coming judgments? You read about the wrath of God on display, and yet there's a glimpse of God's grace and a way of deliverance. Are you ready for the judgment that's to come? Because what's happening is people were married the day of. People were married the day of the flood when it came. People were eating and drinking and merry, acting like nothing was coming, ignoring Noah's warnings. And bam, it came in a moment. Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment of God? And you really need to be able to answer that. God has a way to take these things as we press into them. The Bible says incline your ear and hear. There's a way you can lean into something. And you can really think. And God can speak to you through these sort of things. For example, think over what I say and, and I will give you understanding. 2 Timothy 2.7 As you think about the truth of God's Word, God can speak to you. Listen to me. Are you ready for that? Just as in the days of Noah. Just in the days of the flood. Eating, drinking, being married. And then it came on like a flood. Literally. Are you ready for the coming judgment? The coming of the Son of Man? Listen. Christ is your only hope. He's your only hope. You can, you can read over, we're not going to read it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it compares the ark and the salvation ark to Jesus, the real salvation. He is your atonement ark. Christ is your only hope, but He is a hope indeed. He is a real hope. Just as Noah gets on the boat and the door is shut by God, you come to Christ and He does that for you. Christ, who is the propitiation, laid down His life for your sins. Come to Christ and you can be saved. He is the hope. He's the propitiation. So ask yourself that. The Bible tells us examine yourself as to whether in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Christ is in you? Unless you've been disqualified. Guys, examine yourself. Think about it. There's a judgment day coming. What will it be like? What will it be like? And are you ready for that? Do you know Christ? Is He your Savior? Is He your propitiation? Is He your atonement ark? Is He the one you run to? Are you saved? And here's good news. God saves people like Noah. God delivered Noah. So, so we know God saves people like Noah. Says so you examine yourself, you need to think about Noah, okay? Because God saved. Now, was Noah sinless? Was he a sinless man? Did he get delivered and get put on the ark because he was the sinless one? No. He didn't think so. That's why he offered up that sacrifice right when he got off. Chapter 9, he gets hammered drunk. Sad enough. He sins against God. A few chapters later, we see the Tower of Babel come down. These people are not saved because of their sinlessness. They are sinful people like me and you. So, so but, but God saves people like Noah. What did Noah do? What is it about Noah? And you see that Noah had faith. He trusted the living God. Listen to Hebrews. You can flip with me if you like. Hebrews 11, verse 7. Listen to this. Noah had faith, 
Real faith. Noah trusted God. Hebrews 11.7 By faith, Noah. It's the man of faith. He trusted in the living God. By faith, Noah. Being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This man trusted God. And he had a faith that was, that was leaned in towards Christ, the one who was to come. He did, because verse 13 says, all these men, including Noah, they died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, embraced them and became assured of them. He had a faith that leaned towards Christ. He knew. He, he, he saw Methuselah. And Methuselah walked with Adam. He knew what God told Adam and Eve that there's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. He knew it. So he has a faith. And even a faith that's leaned towards Christ, the coming one, the Savior. Faith. He trusted God. What about you? Is everybody drawn into this? Do you trust Christ? Is He your hope? Is He, when you think about the flood coming, raining down, the flood of God's judgment raining down on you, and you say, how do I know? How do I know that I'll be saved in that day? Is everything that comes out of your heart in that moment because Christ Jesus died for me. If I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell clinging to the cross because this is my only hope. If you're clinging to the cross, you won't. Because He saves people of faith like Noah. Noah's faith was proven. It was proven genuine. It was proven sincere by his work. The Bible says faith without works is dead. It's dead. It means it doesn't really exist. It doesn't have works. It's not really faith. So faith is proven genuine by the works that come out of it. We see that in Genesis 6.22 as it says, Noah did everything that God commanded him. Here's Noah, this man of faith, and he does everything that God commands him. Just like in 1 John 2, it says, By this you know that you know Him, that you keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, but then doesn't keep His commandments, is a liar and the truth's not in Him. The faith's not genuine, but this man has shown genuine faith as he obeyed his God. Or right here in Hebrews eleven seven, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, what did he do? He moved. He moved with godly fear. This shows genuine faith as he moves with godly fear on what God had told him to do. Or let me give you another example of Noah. We hadn't read this one. 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen. Verse 5. It says, it says, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. One of eight people. A preacher of righteousness. There's something we just learned about Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. He's a preacher of righteousness. We see his faith is genuine. Why? You see it in his actions. How could he not? He had been divinely warned that there's coming a judgment. But there's a grace. There's a way to be delivered. God wants to deliver through that atonement ark. How could he not but lift up his voice and tell people it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. The judgment of God is coming. But you can be delivered. And so you see it by His actions. You see it in His preaching. What about you? I'm drawing you in. Is your faith proven genuine? Sincere? By your works? I pray that, I pray that lands right. That in every, every group of people we tend to get around, all the time, this is the nature of Sin and nature of where we live and many other things. 
That so often there's people who, who they, they hardly even think about it. Just, yeah, I'm saved. And check it off. I'm saved. Sure, I'm saved. I'm saved. And yet the reality is never, never truly put their trust in Christ. Have you? Is it shown by your works? Last thing. Go to Psalm 29. Last thing I'll say to you. Oh, this psalm is awesome, y'all. So this is the true flood song. This is the real flood song. Dustin last week said that the flood song is not that kid song. God told Noah to build an archie archie. He said that ain't it. <laughs> and he's right. Psalm 29 is the true flood song. Look at it. I'm going to skip ahead. We'll read, we'll read most of it. Let me skip ahead to verse 10. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. There he is, enthroned at the flood. This is the flood song. He's on his throne, he's king at the flood. Makes sense when you go back into verse 3 and you start reading about the voice of God. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, those flood waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. I love that picture of God of the flood's destruction. It breaks the cedars and splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. And you could go on and on and on. He shakes the wilderness. He, lay, he strips the forest bare. And everybody in his temple says, Glory! And so this is the flood song. This is what I'm going to call the flood song. And so for everybody here who's genuinely saved... What can you learn from the flood song? If you're saved, you're here. Your brothers and many of you here, brothers and sisters in Christ. What can you learn? And two things quickly: for the flood, for what God did there, we need to worship God. Look at verse one and two. Look out, stars. I didn't read those verses. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I wonder if you need to be reminded of that. That more times than not, your first application when you read about something in God's Word is worship His holy name. We should worship Him for what He's done and everything that He is. And the last thing is this. I encourage you to trust Him. Trust Him. Read verse 10 again. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. He sat at the flood cataclysmic event like you have never seen. You've never been involved in something this terrible and God's on His throne. And He's still on the throne. He sits as King forever. Whatever you got in your life, you feel like it might be a little flood, God sits on a throne as King. You need to be reminded of that. And the last verse says, the Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord shall bless His people with peace. He sits on His throne and you can trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for who You have revealed Yourself to be in Your Word. God, help us to worship You. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that as we examined ourselves a moment ago that there was a lack of surety, a lack of assurance there, God, I pray that You would deal with them by Your Spirit, Lord. And God, You don't need any of our permission to deliver their soul from death. God, I pray You do it. And God, as Your people, I pray You teach us to worship You and trust You, Lord, every single moment, God. 
Help us to reach out for your faithfulness. Fight for trusting you. Thank you for your glorious gospel. Thank you for the propitiation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our wrath bearer. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.